0: Welcome to the Grow Kinder podcast, where thought leaders in education explore how social emotional learning can help us navigate society's most pressing challenges and create a kinder, more compassionate world. Brought to you by Committee for Children.
1: The Magnificent Makers follows best friends Pablo and Violet on these really out-of-this-world adventures into a magical laboratory called the Maker Maze.
0: This is Dr. Thean Griffith, author of the children's book series, The Magnificent Makers.
1: There, they team up with a kind of kooky scientist, Dr. Crisp, who takes them on a scientific challenge.
0: In addition to being an author, Dr. Griffith is a mother and a neuroscientist at the University of California, Davis, where she runs her own lab studying the senses.
1: Each book also covers a different science topic as well as a different life lesson.
0: Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Andrea Levenhill. Today on Grow Kinder, I talk to Theanne about her books, her journey to becoming a neuroscientist, and how she's helping instill confidence through accurate representation for the next generation, especially for young black and brown girls not seeing anybody that looked like me doing the things that I
1: wanted to do made me wonder I think erroneously whether or not I would be good at it and whether or not I could make it
0: thanks for joining thean I have a, a child that's almost eight and so we uh, this week read the first book in your series which they loved so oh, yay. Um, yeah and it, and you know we've got we've got the other ones coming so that'll be a, a feature <laughs> oh, in our house oh thank Thank you. Um, it makes
1: me so happy to hear.
0: And as someone who works in education a lot, I thought, you know, as teachers read it they would get such good ideas <laughs> about how to create engagement in the classroom, too. Oh, thank you.
1: That was another very motivating factor for writing these books. Like, I saw these books in classrooms. I saw these books as helping teachers teach the scientific concepts that they're required to teach. That's actually why How to Test a Friendship is all about ecosystems and food chains, because I was, as I was doing some of my research, I asked myself, well, what are second and third grade third grade teachers teaching and, and their students learning, because teachers, as we all know, have to cover so many different topics. And I thought, well, you know, we can hit two birds with one stone and 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 have a, a series that can be used to teach science, but also to improve, you know, literacy skills. Um, So, bridging that science literacy gap was also a huge
0: motivating factor for me. And for our listeners that may not be as familiar with this topic, what is the science literacy gap?
1: Yeah, so basically, science literacy gap, and and again, I'm not an educator, so this is not, (laughs) this is my (laughs) definition of the science literacy gap, Um, but, you know, basically, I feel that science and language arts are taught as these very separate things, right? So science Mm -hmm. is about learning facts and memorizing things, whereas language arts was, you know, about this creativity and storytelling and, and all of that, and I just feel like they're very, they're taught very separately, but they actually really go hand in hand and I can tell you that first off as a
0: scientist. I think that's such a valuable perspective to bring to it because I could tell in your writing that you're trying to bridge a lot of gaps right and that you're seeing those connections not only between science and creativity and writing um, and curiosity and making um, but also you know you start your first uh, book in the series it's the friendship test right so it's really thinking about relationships too and Um, and how to sort of have an inclusive friendship community or maker community. Um, So I'd love to hear more about your background? Like what sort of dro- drove you uh, to really explore those themes?
1: Yeah, I would say I would say what drove me to really kind of weave in the friendship aspect, or I what would, I would say, like even more broadly, right, like the life lesson aspect. Mm-hmm. Science is definitely the world in which the kids are kind of maneuvering, right? But in the end, it's about them. The, the story is about these children. And so I wanted to discuss things that the readers of these books might be, experiencing themselves or had experienced, you know, and we all know that friendship (laughs) is a big uh, topic, especially for young kids, they're learning how to be good friends, they're learning how to manage their emotions such that they don't hurt other people just because maybe they're feeling a, a certain type of way. So for me, it was really important to kind of weave in those life lesson subjects that kids are experiencing into the books. And then it kind of everything just... I feel like when it's done that way, when the science is woven in there, when these lessons are woven in there and that but kids get lost in the story and they learn things without necessarily feeling like they're
0: learning. Um, and and, and, and it, I feel like it sticks yeah. with you better. Yeah, I would agree with that 100 <laughs> percent. Yeah, I can I can tell, too, that, you know, like you care about engaging kids around science and the excitement of discovery and um I'm wondering, you know, I could tell within it that you're creating an environment for that, right? Like that they get to have this this space where that's really fostered and um, and that there's excitement about that environment and how the adults might be helping with it and that sort of thing. So I, I was curious, d- did you have that? Or what was that like for you growing up? Like what sort of factors were really helpful in, in building your sense of, curiosity or discovery or, or moving into the sciences?
1: Yeah, so both of my parents were academics. Both of them were professors at universities, but neither of them were in the sciences. But nonetheless, I think them having this academic background, they gave me a lot of freedom to explore topics that were of interest. They never pushed me towards science. They were just giving me room to explore and be curious about things. Library trips, you know, were just about every weekend with my dad. And so there was definitely a sense of, you know, education is important and fun and and going to the library is important and fun. Um, and so I think providing that kind of open um, open but yet academic environment was really, really important for me. And I kind of went through a variety of careers that I wanted to pursue when I was younger. I first started to want to be a vet. Um, then for a brief time, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, but then I kind of, by the time I was like, maybe 11 or 12, pretty solidly settled on some kind of biology. I realized that I like science, but the kind of science that I liked was like life sciences. And I think, again, just my parents giving me the opportunity to, to figure that out and not say, oh, well, why would you want to be an architect? That's boring. Or, well, you know, space travel, you know, can be dangerous and it's hard and you have to learn a lot of math, so you better be prepared. Like there was no challenge to the you know idea that i happened to have <laughs> in the moment about what i wanted to do it was more like oh well let's go learn about that you know let's go talk about that some more
0: you mentioned your lab earlier, and I want to just like take a moment for that so that folks know what, what it is that you do now. Yeah, so
1: again, I'm a neuroscientist by training. And a lot of people when we think of neuroscience you might think of the brain, which is a very important part of our nervous system. And we also have our spinal cord, another very important part of our nervous system. And those two organs form our central nervous system. But I actually study a completely separate nervous system that we have that's called the peripheral nervous system. And so our peripheral nervous system are primarily made up of these sensory neurons. And so my lab studies how all of these kind of diverse forms of of sensory neurons transmit their information to the central nervous system.
0: I love the way Theanne framed something earlier. She said, science is the world in which kids are maneuvering. But in the end, the story is about them. That's a helpful framework to think about when you're writing a chapter book. But I think it's a great framework for us all in how we think about raising kids, about our own lives too. We all have our worlds we operate in, whether that's at school or work. But ultimately, it's our personal relationships and connections and our experiences with others within those contexts that shape and define us parents, teachers, scientists, or students, we are all people first. And our diverse lived experiences are brought to our work, education, and personal contexts in beautiful and complicated ways. Another piece of the puzzle is our specific identities that we all bring along with us into the worlds we operate in. For Dr. Griffith, that means celebrating and bringing her full identity into her role as a neuroscientist and an author. Within your book series, you, you really focus on representation, in particular um, racial, ethnic representation. And, and I assume that you've had experiences around that within the field of neuroscience, which is also a narrow field. Why is that important? What are, what are your goals around that?
1: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, the people listening can't see me, but I am a black woman. And in the 90s, I was a black little girl who loved science and did not see people that looked like her represented in most forms of children's media. So from books to TV shows, you know, to movies to whatever, I just didn't see little girls that looked like me, Doing science, um, and so I wanted to fill that. And I feel, as I mentioned, both of my parents were professors, but somehow I still had this very significant doubt as I was going through my academic career that I could make it as a professor. And it took me a while. This wasn't something that I realized like throughout my whole journey, but I realized pretty much as I got my position, like once I was, once I made it to the assistant professor level and I have this tenure track position, I realized like, why didn't I think I could do this? Of course I could do this. Both of my parents who came from very poor socioeconomic backgrounds did this. <laughs> what, what, why couldn't I? And I, I? And I really truly believe that the lack of representation compounded with the natural imposter syndrome that we all kind of feel, right, made me wonder, I think erroneously, whether or not I would be good at it and whether or not I could make it. And so I wanted, it's very important for me that kids from all backgrounds, all different racial ethnic groups, all different regions of the country, of the world, of varying abilities and disabilities, I wanted to make sure that they felt too, that there was room for them in
0: science. Yeah, we talk a lot about that, too, because we, you know, there's this concept of windows and mirrors, right? When you're when you're talking about empathy and perspective taking and um, inclusion and belonging, and sort of the importance of seeing reflections of yourself and having windows into the experience of folks that may have a different background than you, or look different from you, or have different abilities than you do. And so that's a a really important concept um, within the social-emotional learning space, too. And I think what you said about your own experience, there was a it makes me think of a, a study from several years ago. I'm sure there's a whole wealth of research around this now. And if my VP of research was here, she'd be so mad at me for, just. I just like <laughs> randomly throw out, I read the science thing. <laughs> she hates that. She's like, where, what, what, but it was, um, it was about, uh, exposure to TV and its effects on, uh, self-worth and self-respect and self-esteem. Um, and that in particular television exposure, um, you know, they saw that there were, uh, you know, decreases in self-esteem for white and black girls and black boys in particular, um, increases for white boys and, you know, relating that to, to not only representation um, just being seen, but what are you actively doing? What is your part in the story and how representative is that part of your actual lived experience? So yeah. um, that really resonated uh, with yeah. me, that study and sort of what you're saying now.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like, what value do the characters you're consuming have? Mm -hmm. Are they valuable or are they kind of ancillary? And I want little black and brown children to see scientists that look like them. You know, I want disabled children to not feel excluded from science based on their disability, which is why in book four, which comes out in October, we feature very prominently a disabled character on the cover. And her disability is discussed in the book and in in part is is part of the story, because that's all about germs. And in addition to being disabled, she is also, you know, we don't discuss exactly why, but we we discuss her being medically fragile. And I'm doing air quotes as I say that, because she does not feel that she is fragile. She knows that she's tough, you know. Um, but for her, that's why germs are extra scary. And so we highlight, you know, this character, and we don't do it in a way that's like, oh, poor them, or oh, this and that, you know, like, we discuss certain differences. So like Violet, for example, has big curly hair. And so sometimes I'll like make reference to that. But I never want to do it in an othering way. It's just, you know, a statement of facts. Violet has big hair. And sometimes in the maker maze, it gets in the way. <laughs> because you know, as a scientist, I had I have short hair now, but I had big hair for most of my scientific career. And sometimes it got in the way, you know. And so so it's really just important for me that all kids see themselves represented.
0: I'm curious about your work where you go into the classroom, like where you're really engaging with kids or educators around your books, like what are your hopes for those kinds of engagement uh, engagements, why are they important? Part of the reason why I do
1: this and why I d- you know, did a lot of outreach, especially as a graduate student, was because I wanted them to see me. I wanted them to see a Black woman that was a scientist, that was a real scientist, and and was, you know, teaching them about cool things. I wanted that representation for them. And it's not just for the Black and brown students in the class. I also thought it was extremely important to see, have the white students also see that someone who doesn't look like them can also be good at science and can also become a scientist. I really wanted the visual, I, I felt like I'm a visual representation of the message <laughs> that I'm trying to pass on in these books.
0: I think about um, a lot about scaling effect here in, in my role and with our work around social emotional learning, because there's there are the things that you do where you kind of, um, you get them into the hands of more families, more kids, more educators, and, and they, make a real difference in sort of like um, shaping culture, or shaping environments, right, and giving kids what they need to thrive. And I really think um, books and, and other forms of media are such an important aspect of that. And um, I think you really expressed that was true for you. And now you're doing that work, which is super exciting that you're sort of like, this is a way I can and take these things forward and scale my effect, right? And like have even more impact. Yeah, I think,
1: again, the biggest thing that I want
0: them to feel is the inclusivity.
1: I want that to feel natural. I don't want that to feel strategic. I don't want that to feel forced. I want it to become a part of the subliminal way in which we think about how our world should operate. You know, I want it to feel weird if there's, you know, a whole show that you're watching and you don't see a black character. I want that to feel strange. I don't want that to feel normal, you know. And so I hope that by, you know, having these books out there that uh, a wide variety of kids see black and brown kids being good at science. And so when they see that in real life, when they see that in their classrooms, when they see that, you know, with, when they become adults and they, among their colleagues, it doesn't feel strange.
0: You have daughters yourself, um, and, and your parents created a, an environment where there was an openness, there was a, an acceptance of creative expression and those sorts of things. What you know, Do you have advice for, for parents or others who are really trying to create um, that kind of environment for their own kids or the kids they're supporting?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: The most, most important thing that a scientist needs, I think, is
1: creativity. And openness and, and curiosity. And I think any way in which you can foster that in your child, you are going to foster, you know, a love for science. And again, the, also, I want to make the point that not every kid needs to be a scientist. <laughs> and so if your kid is rejecting science, that is fine. Let them reject it and let them go do something that makes them happier. Hopefully, they can, you know, grow to have an appreciation for science. And I think by allowing for an open environment where curiosity is, dri- is driving interest, um, then I think that's the most important. So some things that I like to do with my girls are just ask a lot of questions. And it's not about, especially the younger they are, I think it's much less about right and wrong answers. I think as they get older, you can try and, you know, push, not again, not right and wrong, but justifying, you know, your ideas and things like that. But when they're young, if they, you know, say some kind of out-of-this-world explanation for why the clouds are white, you know, maybe that's true in a different dimension. <laughs> You know, like keep those, keep those ideas there because some of my best scientific ideas come from things that make no sense, right? I start, you know, with this kind of nonsensical idea and then I funnel it down into a much more hypothesis driven idea. But it, you know, getting out and getting physical with your kids and building things and, and digging in the recycling bin and figuring out oh you know ways to 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 take a, a bottle and turn it into something else. Those are also you know really fun and and those are simple simple things that don't involve buying you know a five hundred dollar science kit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we can just get yeah. a little magnifying glass. You know, so I think simplicity is key and curiosity driven activities are key.
0: Well, that's good positive engagement with an adult, which is so helpful for their social emotional growth. All the questions that you're talking about remind me of Ada Twist Scientist, which you are co-authoring the companion uh, books for the Netflix series on, which is like such a favorite in our home. Um, But all those questions uh, (laughs) when she finally talks and and that the parents, you know, make space for that, that they... um, it's, it's not just their way or the way things were before they had kids, right? It's like we're making space for this child to, to be a, a human that is a different human from us. Exactly. <laughs> that has ways of engaging with us that are important to recognize.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thean's parents fostered an atmosphere of openness, curiosity, and exploration for her that helped her grow up to become a successful neuroscientist in spite of the lack of representation of her identity as a black woman in the media she grew up with and in her field. Today, as she raises her own young daughters, she feels things have improved somewhat. I have a four-year-old
1: and an almost three-year-old and I just feel so happy that they have the representation that they have today. Now, that being said, I think there's a long way to go and we still have a lot of work to do, but it is still, you know, a lot better and a lot more diverse than what I had when I was growing up.
0: I'm so inspired by the work Theann is doing in her magnificent Maker series. Not just creating a healthy environment for her own kids to learn, grow, and explore ideas, but using her books and her example to scale her effect. Helping to create that environment for all kids. You know, my oldest child, when we were reading the first book, I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to get to talk to Dr. Griffith. Do you want to ask anything? Is there a question here? And um, really, they just they just were like, well, I'll just tell her to keep writing. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm your host, Andrea Levenhill. Thanks for listening to the Grow Kinder podcast. If you learned something from this episode, consider sharing the link with a friend or colleague you think may enjoy it as well. Or give us a rating or review in your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. These little things really do help us grow and reach new audiences and further our mission of creating a kinder, more compassionate world.